This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I suggest we use it. The button pushing stops here. Plug the radio in. Yeah, Welcome, everyone, to Evidence for Faith, where we teach you how to defend the truth of Christianity. We're coming to you live on WIBG from Ocean City, New Jersey, and can be heard simulcast on WIBG.com around the world. This is the show where we give you the evidence, logic, and reason that Christianity is true. Christianity is the greatest hope for human advancement in the history of the world. It's the path forward for human flourishing, and it alone has done the most for the past 2,000 years to advance the freedom and prosperity of every people that have applied its principles to their culture. It's done the most to advance human rights, including the rights of women and children, and giving the poor and oppressed hope for real prosperity, the likes of which the world has never seen before. Christianity gave birth to the scientific method, to universities and hospitals, and has protected innocent life down through the centuries. Hello, I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And you are listening to Evidence for Faith. We are um, going to be talking about a very interesting set of things today. Uh, Keith, including um, uh, Richard Summers Day, which was just celebrated on the hill by the Summers Point Circle. That's right. For locals, we'll know the references to uh, it's the town just north of where we are in the studio. And we're also going to be talking about um, the Dead Sea Scrolls. That's and right. I, and it's my understanding that you had a chance to actually view these while you are in Minnesota. That's right. They have some of the Dead Sea Scrolls were taken to St. Paul. Uh, to be put on display for people in the United States, and so I had a chance to see the, some of the Dead Sea Scrolls while I was out there. So we'll be talking about that today, and uh, you can call us if you'd like to talk uh, with us today about the subjects we'll be covering. You can reach us at 609-398-1020. So Mike, what do you think of the uh, ceremony? Uh, we uh, went together before the radio show to the Richard Summers ceremony, which is what took place right outside the Summers Mansion, which is right at the Summers Point Circle, for those who are familiar with the geography of the area. You know, it's interesting, Keith. Uh, Summers Point Circle right now is being renovated into a huge intersection, but the circle, as, it, as we know, it still exists. Everything around that circle is flat land, except for one mansion that sits up on the hill. Mm -hmm. It's a historic landmark, uh, which I never really knew was there as a historic landmark until today. And nor did I know any of the background information on who Richard Summers actually was. Right, and it's a fascinating story. And he was a naval officer, uh, and at the age of 26, was killed in action in Tripoli Harbor uh, in defense of the shipping industry that the United States was trying to engage in in the Mediterranean because they were being attacked by uh, pirates and so forth that were being sponsored by uh, the people, the Muslims in, in Tripoli, right. now current-day Libya, 
and uh, died uh, in an attempt to uh, blow up the pirate ships that were actually anchored in Tripoli Harbor. Right. And it, uh, I think it's celebrated today because of the relationship to 9-11. I'm not sure if there's any specific reason why they did it today. I don't think it's his birthday or anything like that. Well, it's actually the anniversary of his death. Oh, it is. Okay. Yeah, he was so actually one... killed. He was actually killed 206 years ago in Tripoli Harbor, so it's commemorated uh, on this day because he actually grew up in the Summers Point era, area, right. and uh, some of his relatives were actually on hand at this uh, ceremony. Yeah, it was, it was a lot of dignitaries were there. A lot of dignitaries, and um, uh, a, a young man uh, who's uh, based in Annapolis uh, is writing a book uh, currently uh, uh, on the Intrepid, which was the name of the ship that uh, um, uh, this fine hero was killed on. Mm -hmm. So that's the name of his book. Um, his name is Chip Reed. He's an author and journalist based in Annapolis and is doing the, all of the archive research out of Annapolis on this man uh, who was schooled in Philadelphia at one of the Episcopal Academies and uh, was also a, a, a seaman with uh, Decatur, who many of you may remember uh, as a uh, very, very famous naval officer in the United States Navy in the early 1800s. Yeah, there's even, I remember when I was in New Orleans, there's even a Decatur Street, I assume, named after him. Stephen Decatur. Well, it was probably a common name, but Stephen Decatur and he were, uh, they grew up together, they went to school together, they chummed together and, and uh, fought together. Yeah, so he was one of the first casualties. The link is obviously there about the, the battle with Islamic terrorism, with uh, uh, Islamic extremism. And so it happened uh, over 200 years ago. Yep. So, so that was uh, that was very interesting. Well, we've got there's a couple of other news items that we will get to before we get to uh, the True. main topic for the the show today, and one related one uh, is about a new book that's out, and it's called The Tenth Parallel. I I heard an interview with the author, and I I don't you know we could spend a lot of time on this, but I think we'll just briefly touch on it because I think it's of interest uh, since it is. Uh, was recently September 11th, and uh, this book, The Tenth Parallel, is about the conflict between um, Muslim nations and Christian nations, and it, you can roughly draw a line across the Tenth Parallel, and there's a lot of warfare, because to the north of it, there is, um, and this is on the continent of Africa, you're right, so um, uh, to the north of it is a Muslim uh controlled countries, and to the south is typically Christian-controlled countries, and so there's a lot of warfare along the border there. And so the conclusion of this book, though, is, I thought, very odd. The conclusion is that what the real problem is is that the, these are two people groups who are arguing over who speaks for God. And you, you get the impression that what the author's trying to say is that if we just stop trying to decide who speaks for God, then there wouldn't be any fighting anymore. And I just couldn't believe how incredibly shallow that kind of an analysis was. You know, the kind of extremism, uh, she was saying that it's really both sides. Both sides are extreme. They're trying to speak for God. But if one side speaks for God and says, uh, kill everyone, and the other, one, the other side speaks for God and says, defend the innocent— uh, you know, And love. And love. And love everyone. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, it really— uh, 
at least I know who I think uh, I hope uh, wins the battle for who speaks for God. Well, if if I was an atheist or a secular humanist or somebody who doesn't think that God needs to be in the, the equation anywhere, or if let's say I wanted to be politically correct, her conclusion is correct. If you are one of those three people, you know, if, yeah. you, if you're all for political correctness or atheism or secular humanism, right. there's Not no alternative because failing to point out that that the atheist uh, naturalist viewpoint has led to far more bloodshed and death than uh, any religious wars have caused in the history of the world. Even just the 20th century alone uh, has led to more bloodshed by atheist naturalist. Uh, uh, ph- philosophical and political views. Well, uh, be, be more specific, Keith. I mean, we're, we're talking about Karl Marx and, and the uh, 1918 yep. Stalin, Mao, Re- Revolution, Pol Pot. Pol Pot, right, exactly. Yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, and even on what's going on in the Muslim countries as 52 far as— 52 atheists who killed about 170 million people during the 20th century. Okay, there you go. Yeah, so uh, so the little case of the, ca- the uh, pot calling the kettle black— well, there's another book out, too, and again, it's something that we'll have to deal with more in-depth at another time, called Consciousness After Death, and it's another review of afterlife experiences, and I'd love to get your feel on it uh, coming from a physician's viewpoint about this, so we'll uh, get into this more, but apparently another study of more than 300 uh, after-death uh, experiences and and uh, what happens and uh, how this proves that the existence of the soul, just as the Bible describes there is a soul uh, in each human being. Yeah, and these were people who uh, were undergoing CPR uh, in an attempt to revive a failing heart. And of course, while undergoing CPR and being given the the, the medications that try to jumpstart the heart, and and as well as the electrical shocking devices that are utilized to uh, jumpstart the heart, these people were actually uh, found to have conscious recollection of what was going on. And right. many, that many of them actually felt an out-of-body experience and could see what was going on in and around them. Uh, and the fact of the matter is uh, there's irreversible brain damage after about four minutes of lack of perfusion to the brain. Mm-hmm. So even though the heart is not beating, there is still brain function mm-hmm. for that brief period of time. So it's uh, incumbent upon the resuscitators to make sure that mechanically they're being ventilated, mechanically they're being compressed in order to promote blood flow to and from the, uh, the brain, and also uh, to prevent stagnation of the blood, which would then lead to coagulation and ultimately um, death. Right, right. So and the, uh, one of the interesting things that, that came out of this study is that they were able to tell that this realm that these people go to is a timeless realm because they would measure the time during the resuscitation and then also account try to account for the time of the experience that the person had, and there was no correlation. So people that would um, be, quote-unquote, dead for a very short period of time could have very long experiences in this other dimension. And so, uh, very interesting. We'll get more into that uh, later. If you're interested in the topic, though, we have covered this on a previous show, so it's available in our podcasts. And I'd like to remind everybody that you can access those podcasts by either going to our own website at uh, evidence for that's the number four, evidenceforfaith.com, uh, or you can get them uh, at iTunes. Uh, we have over 90 uh, at this point in time in the archives and uh, we are certainly celebrating our, uh, um, going into our third year, actually. That's we right. celebrated our second anniversary this past week, but we're going into our third year, and 
hope that we're going to have many other uh, years. I'd like to remind our listening audience also that uh, this show is supported in part by Grace Community Church. You can visit them at their website at uh, aplaceforgrace.org. A place, that's the number four, aplaceforgrace.org. Great. And if you'd like to call in, we'll be, uh, you can reach us at 609-398-1020. So Keith, tell us a little bit more about the Dead Sea Scrolls and your experience at the museum where you actually were able to see these actual uh, um, scrolls firsthand. Yep. Yeah, it was very exciting. It's uh, put on at the Science Museum in St. Paul, and it's called The Dead Sea Scrolls, Words That Changed the World. And I'll just read you a brief uh, intro from this pamphlet that I brought back with me. Unfortunately, we weren't allowed to take any photographs or anything like that, but um, uh, I I did pick up a Old Testament Bible based completely and only on the Dead Sea Scrolls. So that's a great addition to my... Uh, Bible references. and uh, But here's what this uh, um, brochure says. The most important archaeological discovery of the 20th century. In 1947, a shepherd stumbled upon the Dead Sea Scrolls and caves below the ancient settlement of Qumran. Since then, archaeologists have pieced together more than 100,000 scroll fragments into more than 900 documents from biblical manuscripts and commentary to religious legal writings that tell us about the world 2,000 years ago. The Dead Sea Scrolls, Words That Changed the World, is a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to see actual scrolls from Qumran and to discover their culture, scientific, and religious impact. It's a story that's beyond words, beyond time, and beyond our imagination for limited time only at the Science Museum of Minnesota. And, uh, you know, it was terrific opportunity to see them because they are normally kept in Jerusalem and so under tight wraps and tight control. So, so it was a lot, very interesting to see what they had. And so, you know, one of, the, one of the very, very important things about this find, and this is the real thing that makes it uh, one of the most fascinating finds of uh, the 20th century as far as archaeolo- archaeologists are concerned, is that it proves that the actual text from the Dead Sea Scrolls, which um, are the oldest document that we have, right. uh, whereas the most re- well, the, the oldest document up until then was uh, the Masoretic texts, texts specifically were referencing Isaiah from a thousand years later. That's right. So when you compare the Masoretic text to the Dead Sea Scrolls, it shows that the, the accuracy and the copying through the centuries, the, ten, the, 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 the thousand years later, was yes. phenomenally accurate. That's right. And I was surprised at how they sort of promoted this, this uh, exhibition. Uh, instead of concentrating on some of the things that would naturally be appealing to Christians to and to inspire them to come and see the scrolls, they really spent very little time talking about uh, those two very prominent points that that are the reasons why archaeologists were saying that this is the most significant archaeological discovery of the 20th century. Number one is because these. It's not just that here's. 2,000-year-old scrolls, it's the fact that they proved that for a 1,000 years, these were accurately uh, copied and recopied uh, over and over again uh, up to the 
the previously oldest copies that we had, the Masoretic text from 1000 AD. So that's very, very significant. And the second thing is that these Old Testament scrolls, this is essentially the entire Old Testament found at the Dead Sea uh, caves, uh, contain prophecies about events that would happen in the next several hundred years. So, you know, and they didn't mention that at all. You know, it was, it was really quite amazing. They, they talked about a little bit about how some of the words changed, and there were some slight wording changes, and we'll get into that in a minute. But one of the astounding things that I saw was they even had a plaque that talked about the quote-unquote evolution of Scripture and, and referred to the, quote, still fluid Scriptures. Now, now, what does that mean, the still fluid scriptures? They think that the scriptures are changing now? I mean, come on, they're, we have the old documents, they're recorded, they're written down. Nobody is copying hand-to-hand anymore, unless you think uh, Xerox copiers or modern printing methods somehow introduce error into the text. You can't claim that these are still fluid. They're not. They, they are the same and always will be from now on. That you're almost so, implying that they're etched in stone, yeah, aren't they? Better than that, they're in you know microfilm around the world, you know, uh, you know. Uh, so, so there's no possibility of any of the text being altered or changing over time, um, you know, since uh, basically Gutenberg, since the printing press. Yeah, let, let me let me frame this in the context of a uh, uh, a very very famous uh, archaeologist, an archaeologist. His name was uh, Merle F. Unger, U N G E R. Um, and this this was a quote from 1957, uh, about 10 years after the discovery of the uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and he said this, and this is about the Book of Isaiah and so forth that were discovered on the uh, uh, cliffs northwest of the Dead Sea in Qumran. He said this: "This complete document of Isaiah quite understandably created a sensation, since it was the first major biblical manuscript of great antiquity ever to be recovered." Interest in it was especially keen since it antedates by more than a thousand years the oldest Hebrew texts preserved in the Masoretic tradition. Yeah. Pretty pretty strong commentary, and this was within ten years of their find. So so let's tell people what exactly the Dead Sea Scrolls are. Okay, they're they're the Old Testament plus additional books. They include a complete copy of the Book of Isaiah. Uh, fragments of almost every book in the Old Testament. The majority of the fragments were from Isaiah and the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. But also the books of Samuel uh, uh, were also found along with two complete chapters of the book of uh, Habakkuk. In addition, there was a number of non-biblical scrolls that were related to the commune of Qumran and, and the rules that they had there. And those materials are all dated uh, from approximately 100 B.C., so 100 years before uh, the time of Christ. Uh, It also included uh, fragments of six copies of the book of Daniel, and we'll Mm. be talking about some of the prophecies from Daniel. So the significance of the find is incredible, and uh, I'm just surprised that the, the museum staff didn't see the potential uh, it's almost as if they didn't realize what they had on their hands. Keith, uh, I'm going to play devil's advocate. I believe that they understood what the significance of the find was. 
I think that the, it was they almost were downplaying they it. were downplaying it and uh, uh, just showing it as a as a work of antiquity that had been preserved in these clay pots, these clay jars, in the dry caves of Qumran, and that's all it was. It was just a sterile piece of leather with with uh, with um, Hebrew alphabet uh, scribble on it, right, and nothing more. Right. Yeah. Well. Let's talk about how this proves the accuracy of the transmission of the Bible down through the ages. So a comparison of the Qumran manuscript of Isaiah with the Masoretic text, so that's a thousand years of time of copying uh, generation by generation of the scribes who were called the Masoretes. So it revealed an incredibly close accuracy to, to uh, each other. Um, I've heard descriptions of as much as uh, 99.8% similarity. But let's just take a look at Isaiah 53, since we claim that Isaiah 53 contains prof- prophecy about Jesus, the Messiah Jesus, mm-hmm. and in no uncertain terms. Okay, so, and this book of Isaiah dates, itself dates to about 200 BC. So it was old when it was put away in the caves. It was already about a hundred years old when it was put into the caves about a hundred BC. And what it what it showed, Keith, was that in Isaiah, Isaiah chapter fifty three, there were only about seventeen letters that were different between the the scrolls that were found in the caves in Qumran mm-hmm. compared to the Masoretic texts that were written a thousand years later. Now, what this shows is that there was no doctoring up of the document. Right, and no okay. big mistakes were made nope. in the copying. It's not like they made huge errors and missed things. And you know, ten, no. ten of these letters that were, were misrepresented, yep. uh, there were differences in spelling, like, you know, the British spell honor, H-O-N-O-U-R. Right. We spell it H-O-N-O-R. Right. There's no difference in the word meaning, and there's certainly no difference in the text meaning. So in, in a thousand years, some of the words are spelled differently. Maybe that's, that's, the, maybe that's what they meant by fluid. That the language was evolving <laughs> with time. Yeah, well, you know, for atheists, um, you have to relate everything to evolution. You know, um, so, so, and, and you know, there, there were. Let, let's go through those seventeen uh, differences. What we've already talked about ten, uh, ten little spelling things, which didn't materially change the uh, context of the text itself. Right. Four more were very minor differences, such as the presence of a conjunction. For instance, and. And is a conjunction. Mm-hmm. So some of the sentences had an and inserted or an and removed. But again, no material change in the context of, of the meaning of that text occurred. Correct. And then the last three letters that to account for make up the Hebrew word light. So in verse 11 of chapter 53, um, and that chapter contains 166 words, there's only one real word that's different, and that is the word light instead of where uh, it says, um, uh, they shall see, this is verse 11, they shall see uh, in the um, Isaiah scroll, it says they shall see light. So a three-letter word. So and obviously that doesn't change the meaning. They shall see and they shall see light does not change the meaning of the verse. So biblical scholars all agree that the little nuances, the little changes, mm-hmm. had no material uh, change in the uh, meaning or the uh, uh, context of what was trying to be brought forth in message format. 
So, listeners, you can trust the authority of Scripture. When people tell you that it has been changed down through the years, that is simply not true. And in 1947, when the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered, this cemented the Masoretic tradition of the scribes as being materially correct, down to, like Jesus said in the New Testament, every jot and tittle. That's right. That's right. So um, something to be very confident in that you can that the Bible that you have uh, in your hands is very reliable. So now let's let's turn a little bit now. If you're just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. You can call in at 609-398-1020 if you live in southern New Jersey, or if you would like to, you can email us at kkendricks at evidenceforfaith.com. So it's K-K-E-N-D-R-E-X at evidenceforfaith, the number four, faith.com. And uh, we will take your questions uh, on the air. So let's talk about uh, some Old Testament prophecies, since we're dealing with the Old Testament Mm -hmm. and uh, the reliability of the Old Testament. And... um, we're going to talk about uh, some of the uh, um, prophecies that were offered up, not only by Isaiah, but also Jeremiah. And if we have time, we'll get into some of the Daniel prophecies as well. Right. We're mainly going to um, talk about uh, ancient kingdoms and cities that had been threatening Israel over the years. And there were prophecies about what would happen to these countries and cities that threatened Israel written down, and those prophecies were fulfilled hundreds of years later for the most part. So we're going to take a look at about 12 prophecies written hundreds of years before they actually occurred, maintained in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and uh, so this is positive proof. What's neat about this is, you know, you always wonder what's, what's most important. Is it most important to determine first whether the Bible is true and accurate, or is it more important to decide things like, well, does God exist? I mean, what point is there in looking at the Bible if you don't even know that God exists? Well, one of the interesting things about fulfilled prophecy is that it encapsulates both concepts in one evidence. So maybe somebody who was not open to hearing about the logical and philosophical arguments that God actually does exist and that we can be confident that he does exist might be ready to listen when they've seen that we have actual physical copies of manuscripts that contain prophecies that about events that would occur hundreds of years later. Um, so, you know, who can tell the future? Only God. So this not only shows that God exists, but also shows that the Bible is a work, a product of God. So we've got a kind of two-for-one here that's very valuable to showing that Christianity is true. And the other thing is, Keith, we who believe in God and who believe that God's Word, His Bible, is inspired, look upon these things as the um, proof or the evidence when you, when they combine human history and things that have evolved in human history that were predicted by men who were inspired by God as his prophets. And when they do come true, 
It just goes to prove that these men were of God and were inspired by God because they wrote it down, and it was preserved over hundreds of years and sometimes thousands of years, and then these predictions came true. Right. And And that's powerful. And God gives us the actual benefit of showing us the manuscripts that he's managed to maintain over a thousand years, well, actually, in this case, two thousand years, but a thousand years older, older than anything we had before, just to give us the evidence that you can trust what he has to say. So, well, so go ahead, Mike, and tell yep. us the first prophecy and yeah, we're gonna, go through it. We're, we're going to take a, a prophecy from Jeremiah, um, and first is going to be that uh, Babylon will rule over Judah for 70 years, and this is coming out of Jeremiah 25, 11 and 12, um, and it says this, This whole country will become a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. But when the 70 years are fulfilled, I will punish the king of Babylon and his nation, the land of the Babylonians, for their guilt, declares the Lord, and will make it desolate forever. Mm. So, Keith, what do you you take from that in this passage? What's he saying? All right, well, Jeremiah said that the Jews would suffer 70 years of Babylonian domination, and that after this was over, Babylon would be punished. Both parts of this prophecy were fulfilled in 609 B.C. Babylon captured the last Assyrian king and took over the holdings of the Assyrian army, which included the land of Israel. Babylon then began to flex its muscles by taking many Jews as captives to Babylon and by destroying Jerusalem and the temple. This domination of the Jews ended in 539 BC when Cyrus, a leader of the Persians and Medes, conquered Babylon, bringing an end to the empire. Now the prophecy also had another fulfillment. The Babylonians destroyed Jerusalem's temple in 586 BC, but the Jews rebuilt it and consecrated it exactly 70 years later in 516 B.C., restoring the temple showed in a very important way that the effects of the Babylonian domination had indeed come to an end. So an amazing prophecy fulfilled uh, about 100 years after it it was written down by Jeremiah. All right, so that's the first one. Let, let's talk about another one. And again, this, this is going to come out of uh, the book of Isaiah, uh, which would have been part of the Dead Sea Scrolls. And this has to do with Babylon's gates uh, being opened up for Cyrus. Um, now, this is what Isaiah 45.1 says. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of, to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that the gates will not be shut. All right, so in this passage, the prophet said that God would open the gates of Babylon for Cyrus and his attacking army. Now, despite Babylon's remarkable defenses, which were truly remarkable, it included moats, walls that were more than 70 feet thick, 300 feet high, 250 watchtowers, and the walls actually straddled the Euphrates River. There was the city on both sides of the river, and the wall went completely around the entire city. It, so it was a truly amazing defensive structure. But Cyrus was able to enter the city and conquer it. What Cyrus and his troops did was divert the flow of the Euphrates River into a large lake basin, and then Cyrus was able to march his army into the riverbed, 
underneath the wall and into the city. That's phenomenal. For, yep. First of all, the, the, the building, the, the engineering of that fortress was phenomenal. 300 feet wide, 700-foot base, 250 watchtowers. That's impregnable. So what did they do? They diverted the flow of the water, and an empty riverbed flowed, well, no longer flowed, but it went under the walls, and it was high enough that an army could march along the riverbed and enter the city uh, by a natural gate. Isn't that phenomenal? Amazing. That is amazing. And and even more amazing is that it was written about before the year 681 B.C., yet it wasn't fulfilled until hundreds of years later in 539 B.C., so an amazing prophecy written right down there in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And the next, the next one we're going to look at, Keith, is Babylon's kingdom uh, would be permanently overthrown. And we're going to be looking at Isaiah 13, 19, which was written between 701 and 681 B.C., um, and it was fulfilled about uh, 539 B.C. This is right. what Isaiah 13, 19 says. It says, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the glory of the Babylonian's pride will be overthrown by God like Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay, so here Isaiah is telling us that Babylon would be overthrown permanently, basically, completely destroyed. And history confirms the fact that following Cyrus's destruction of Babylon in 539 B.C., it never again rose to power as an empire. So you've got to remember that before the time of Cyrus, Babylon had been defeated by the Assyrian army as well, but Babylon was able to recover and later conquer the Assyrian army. So in light of this reality, uh, you know, many people, I'm sure, probably doubted when, that I, when Isaiah proclaimed this prophecy that it wouldn't happen. But in spite of this, and just as Isaiah did predict, the Babylonian Empire was defeated and never, ever recovered from Cyrus's conquest. It almost recovered recently, didn't it? Yes, because Saddam Hussein Saddam tried Hussein to rebuild the Babylon. Ba- Babylon, and guess what happened? And he's history. He's history. So so now the, the fourth uh, prophecy that we want to tell you about is the prophecy that Babylon would be reduced to swampland. Now, this is a very interesting prophecy because the fact that that area is in swampland uh, came out as part of the war coverage. So I remember them talking about that swampland. So this is found in Isaiah 14, 23. Again, Isaiah, the book of Isaiah was written between 701 and 681 B.C., and the prophet makes yet another prediction that did not come true until well after 539. So uh, much later, and even much later than the critics, if you talk to a, a skeptic and say get his version of when Isaiah was written, still this prophecy didn't uh, wasn't fulfilled until much later. So I, it, what it is, Isaiah 14.23, which says... I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction, declares the Lord Almighty. Isaiah 14:23. Wow. You know, Keith, here the prophet Isaiah makes a pretty bold claim that Ab- that Babylon, which is which had been a world power at two different times in its history up until then, would be brought to a very very humble and final end. 
But not only that, Isaiah claims that Babylon would be, be reduced to swampland. Uh, after Cyrus conquered Babylon in 539, the kingdom never again rose to power. Uh, that is certain. We know that by history. Right. And history tells us that the, uh, the buildings of Babylon fell into gradual state of ruin during the next several centuries. And interestingly enough, when the city was dug up archaeologically and excavated at Babylon during the uh, 1800s, they discovered that some of the parts of the city uh, couldn't be dug up because they were underwater. The water table had risen above its foundations and its walls, and basically it was underwater, basically right. as a swamp, right. a wasteland. Yep. And that still remains that way today, although I think one of the things that was in the news was, I think, um, prior to that, that that uh, Saddam Hussein had tried to drain some of that swampland and uh, basically destroyed the economy of the people living in that area. So um, if you are just joining us, you are listening to Evidence for Faith. I'm Keith Kendricks. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Larrakis. And this is the show where we give you the evidences that shows that Christianity is true. And the evidence we're talking about today is fulfilled prophecy that shows that God exists and that he has spoken to the human race through the Old Testament and the New Testament. We're specifically going into the Old Testament prophecies found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that have been uh, discovered by archaeologists and uh, reveal prophecies that were fulfilled hundreds of years later. So we're up to number five in this prophecy is that the Jews would survive the Babylonian rule and return home. Now this prophecy comes from Jeremiah 32, verses 36 through 37. This prophecy was written between the years 626 and 586 B.C., and uh, yet another prophet made a bold prediction that was ultimately fulfilled in 536 B.C. So that's Jeremiah 32, 36. Mike, you want to read that? Sure. And this is what Jeremiah 32, verses 36 and 37 says. You are saying about this city... Being by, Jerusalem, the right, city of Jerusalem. city of Jerusalem. By the sword, famine, and plague, it will be handed over to the king of Babylon... But this is what the Lord God says uh, of Israel. I will surely gather them from all the lands where I banish them in my furious anger and great wrath. I will bring them back to this place and let them live in safety. Okay, so in this passage, Jeremiah said that the Jews would survive their captivity in Babylon and return home, and both parts of this prophecy were ultimately fulfilled. Many Jews had been taken as captives to Babylon beginning around 605 B.C., but in 538 B.C. they were released from captivity, and many eventually returned to their homeland near Jerusalem. Very interesting. And the sixth prophecy, Keith, has to do with the Ninevites. And in this uh, prophecy from Nahum, and this is uh, chapter 1, verse 10, written about 614 B.C., the prophet predicts the condition of the Ninevites at the time of their demise. Okay, and this is what he has to say. All right, let me do that. Nahum 110. They will be entangled among thorns and drunk from their wine. They will be consumed like dry stubble. Wow. And guess what happened? This is, this is basically what, uh, what happened. In this passage, and once again in Nahum uh, 3.11, the prophet said 
that during the final hours of the, the attack on Nineveh, the Ninevites would be drunk. Well, that's exactly what happened, and the evidence to this prophecy was actually fulfilled, according to ancient historian um, Diodorus Siculus. The Assyrian king gave much wine to his soldiers. Um, deserters told this to the enemy who attacked that night. And that's a direct quote from Diodorus Siculus. Right. Excellent. Right, and Siculus com- compiled his historical works about 600 years after the fall of Nineveh, and in doing so, confirmed the biblical account. Terrific. All right, prophecy number seven. This is a prophecy that Nineveh, this great city Nineveh that you probably remember, was related to Jonah and the whale. Mm -hmm. Uh, So that terrific city that God loved, this prophecy is that Nineveh would be destroyed by fire. So once again in Nahum, and this is in chapter 315, and again written about 614 B.C., the prophet makes a prediction which ultimately did come true. So you want to read that? I sure will. And this is what he said. There the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you down and like grasshoppers consume you. And that's Nahum 3.15. So the prophet said that Nineveh would be damaged by fire. Now archaeologists have unearthed the site during the 1800s and found a layer of ash covering the ruins. And according to the Encyclopedia Britannica, it says, quote, Nineveh suffered a defeat from which it never recovered. Extensive traces of ash representing the sack of the city by Babylonians, Scythians, and Medes in 612 BC have been found in many parts of the Acropolis. After 612 BC, the city ceased to be important, close quote. Mm. That's a pretty strong uh, uh, quotation, too, from and the And confirmation of prophecy. Right. There you go. Okay, the eighth prophecy that we're going to talk about has to do with Tyre, and it's going to be attacked by many nations. And this comes from Ezekiel 26.3, which was written about 587 through 586 B.C. And this is what the prophet predicts on the attack of Tyre at that time. Okay. Ezekiel 26.3 says this, Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says, I am against you, O Tyre, and I will bring many nations against you, like the sea casting up its waves. Okay, now the Tyre prediction is one that we've talked about on a previous show. Tyre was a city um, that um, began to be attacked, and wave after wave of attacks happened down through the centuries, and just as predicted by Ezekiel long after his death, long after even the skeptics say that the book of Ezekiel was written, and even older than the copies of Ezekiel that we find in the Qumran caves in the Dead Sea Scrolls. So the prophet said that Tyre, which was a Phoenician empire's most powerful city, would be attacked by many nations because of its treatment of Israel. At about the time that Ezekiel delivered this prophecy, Babylon had begun a 13-year attack on Tyre's main, uh, mainland. It was a city that was divided. Half of it was on the mainland, and half of it was on an island immediately offshore. So later, in about 332 B.C., well after the conclusion of the canon of the Old Testament had been settled, Alexander the Great conquered the island of Tyre and brought an end to the Phoenician Empire. Then after that, Tyre later fell again under the rule of the Romans, 
and was attacked and destroyed by the Muslims yet again in 1291 and finally completely wiped out and is nothing but a fishing village uh, these days. You know what, Keith, in um, perfect proximity to that prediction is another one that's related. Mm -hmm. And this has to do with tires, stones, and timber, and soil be cast into the sea. And uh, this comes from Ezekiel 26.12, and it was written about 587 through 586 B.C., um, that the stones and the timber and the soil of Tyre will be thrown into the sea. All right, this I've is, got that. Yeah, this is really, really interesting. Here's what that verse says. They will plunder your wealth and loot your merchandise. They will break down your walls and demolish your fine houses and throw your stones, timber, and rubble into the sea. Now, that strikes me as a pretty odd prophecy about the destruction of a city that wasn't going to happen for hundreds of years to come. But here's what happened historically, and I find this fascinating. Okay, the prophet said that tires, stones, and timber and soil will be thrown into the sea. Uh, well, they weren't quite thrown into the sea. They were they are actually organized somewhat and put into the sea. And this is what happened. Um, Alexander the Great built a land bridge from the mainland to the island of Tyre when he attacked it in 332 B.C., Okay, and it's believed that he took the rubble from the mainland's ruins, Tyre's mainland's ruins. So all of the buildings were were, uh, ransacked and and, and torn down, and they took all the building blocks and stones and timbers and everything else, brought them down to the sea, and they built a bridge. They constructed a bridge out of the materials from the ransacked city. Yeah, Alexander the Great was not to be messed with. He he was, well, he's one of my... Greek. Um, oh, there you go. One of my Greek heroes. You <laughs> yeah, know. there you go. There you go. <laughs> but All right. Isn't that fascinating historically what happened there? Absolutely. Absolutely. And another incredible proof of the prophetic um, truth of Scripture. So we've got another prophecy. This one is that the uh, Jewish nation would avenge themselves against the Edomites. And we talked about the Edomites in past shows. That's where the city, their capital city, was called Petra. And maybe you've seen that on travel magazines where these incredible buildings that are carved right into the cliff sides. And that is what we're talking about, that city Petra, and that was the capital of the Edomites. So this was prophesied by Ezekiel in Ezekiel 25, 14, written between 593 B.C. and uh, 571 B.C., And here the prophet predicted that the Jews would eventually have revenge against the Edomites. This was not fulfilled, however, for over 400 years until approximately 100 B.C. So about the time of the Dead Sea Scrolls, uh, this prophecy from Ezekiel was fulfilled. Well, let me read Ezekiel 25, 14, Keith. Uh, I will take uh, revenge on Edom by the hand of my people Israel— and they will def- they will deal with Edom in accordance with my anger and with my wrath, and they will know my vengeance, declares the Sovereign Lord. Okay. So Ezekiel said that the Jews would one day take vengeance on Edom, which was a nation that had often warred with the Jews. When Ezekiel delivered this prophecy, he and many other Jews were living as captives in Babylon. This was during the Babylonian captivity. And they didn't have control of their own country, let alone anyone else's to claim that they could wreak vengeance on them. But about 400 years later, the Jews regained independence for Jerusalem and the surrounding area, 
during what's called the Hasmonean period. Now, during this time, the Jewish priest king, John Hyrcanus I, defeated the Edomites. According to the Columbia Encyclopedia 5th edition, quote, Edomite history was marked by continuous hostility and warfare with Jews. At the end of the 2nd century BC, they were subdued by Hasmonean priest king John Hyrcanus I. Close quote. Interesting. Well, that was the 10th prophecy. Uh, Keith, this will be the 11th, and this has to do with Edom being toppled and humbled, and this comes right out of Jeremiah 49.16, which was written sometime between 626 and 586 B.C. Here the prophet predicts that Edom will be toppled, but it wasn't fulfilled until about 100 B.C. Okay. Would you read that one? Yep, this is from Jeremiah 49.16, and it says, The terror you inspire and the pride of your heart have deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rocks, referring again to those, that rock city, Petra, who occupy the heights of the hill, though you build your nest as high as the eagles, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. That's Jeremiah forty-nine sixteen. Okay, and here Jeremiah says that Edom, longtime enemy of Israel, was going to be destroyed. Edom's capital city, Petra, was carved out of the mountainside, and it was a tremendous natural defense and pretty much impregnable, uh, if you think of it. Um, climbing cliffs and so forth and defeating them was uh, quite quite difficult right. and very easy to defend by the, uh, uh, the residents of Edom. So an amazing prophecy that somebody would say this would be destroyed. Sure. And this was before um, flight. Mm-hmm. You know, if, if you had flight, whether it's dirigible, balloon, airplane, whatever, it'd be an easy thing to, to do. But right. this is certainly before manned flight. Uh, So anyway, nonetheless, it was destroyed, and the kingdom of Edom no longer exists today. Petra is a part of Jordan, and it still is in existence. Uh, The city was conquered by the Romans in the year 106 AD, but it started to flourish again shortly after that. But a rival city, Palmyra, eventually took most of the trade away from Petra, and therefore Petra began to decline. Muslims conquered Petra in the 7th century, and then Crusaders conquered it again in the 12th century, and Petra gradually fell into ruin. So that is uh, the 11th prophecy. Now we're going to get into one of my favorite prophecies, and uh, this is the 12th prophecy for today. This is the Daniel 9 prophecy, Um, and the reason this is such an exciting prophecy is that this has to do with the Messiah. You know, uh, people wonder why it was that the Jews were so anxious at this time for the Messiah. Why did they think that the Messiah was coming right at the time that Jesus was there? Were they just looking for anybody and wanted to push someone forward? No, they had a very specific reason, and it was because there was a very specific prophecy written about Jesus hundreds of years before in the book of Daniel. So, uh, remember that these, um, you know, the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls contained uh, six copies of the Book of Daniel, and date to about uh, hundred. I think the oldest one, the oldest fragments of Daniel, were written circa 165 B.C., right before Christ. So this prophecy, and we have this 
scroll. We, we actually, you can go and look at it in a museum, this scroll that talks about Jesus. So Josephus wrote that, um, Josephus the historian wrote that the book of Daniel had already been in existence since the fourth century. So there's no reason to doubt that it was in any way tampered with. And as I said, we actually have copies of it. So um, six or seven copies were in Qumran. Um, and the archaeological evidence is that from the sixth century, which is when the book of Daniel would have been written, supports the, the historical information in Daniel. Uh, so that further confirms that the, that the book was written when it was said. Uh, in fact, um, later historians, both Herodotus in the fifth century and Xenophon in the fourth century, had errors, historical errors, in their recording the history but um, that were not contained in Daniel, so we know it was incredibly accurate. So given, um, so this, this was given during the 70-year 70, 70 captivity in Babylon, and it predicted a time frame of, which was called 77s. So this is found in Daniel chapter 9, 24 through 27, and written about 530 B.C., Remember now that Jerusalem had already been destroyed, and it's a prediction that the city and temple would be rebuilt, then the Messiah would come, the Messiah would be cut off or killed, he would be raised back to life, and then the temple would be destroyed. So Israel had this thing called weeks of years, and that meant that each seven years was counted as one. So when it says 70 sevens, it's talking about years. So you just simply multiply, and it says that after 69 of these, then the um, Messiah would come. So that's, that mounts up to 483 years. So um, now the problem comes is to which decree? How do you time this? When did this decree happen? Well, it turns out that there were actually four decrees that were involved in the restoration of the Jews to Babylon. So um, they're mentioned in Ezra and Nehemiah. But there's an interesting thing. The prophecy said that it, it had to include the re rebuilding of the city and the temple. So only one of them includes that. So if you time that out, then you get to... Um, the year 30 AD. So we know that on the 10th of Nisan, 30 AD, is when Jesus the Messiah, mentioned in this prophecy, came into Jerusalem in the week of the Passion Week. And that's why the Jews were all excited. Yep, because they knew this was the year that the Messiah was supposed to come. And he did. And since the temple was destroyed at that time, it means there's no other possibility. You have been listening to Evidence for Faith with Keith Kendricks and Dr. Mike Larrakis. Join us again for more reasons to believe on Sundays at 4 p.m. <laughs>